0: X-ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Andy Lindbergh from Portland, Oregon. You can find me this Wednesday on X-ray in the Morning from 7:30 to 8:30 a.m. I'll be covering the news of the day, and you can listen live at x-ray.fm. X-ray. It's Tuesday, March 9th. Today, back in the day. Today, back in the day in 1859, Barbie celebrated her official birthday. Ruth Handler developed the Barbie doll after watching her daughter play with homemade dolls. Her daughter would give the dolls adult roles, such as jobs and spouses, a departure from established toys, which were often infants. Handler and engineer Jack Ryan redesigned a German doll named Lily and displayed her at the American International Toy Fair on this day 62 years ago. 350,000 dolls were sold in the first year of production. Until 1971, Barbie did not look forward. Instead, she held a, quote, demure sideways glance. In 2020, Mattel sold 1.35 billion worth of Barbie dolls and accessories, their best sales growth in decades. Today, back in the day in 1997, An unknown shooter killed Christopher Wallace, aka the Notorious B.I.G. Wallace was in California at the time, promoting his upcoming album Life After Death and shooting a music video for the single Hypnotize. Wallace was traveling with heavy security, in part due to his massive celebrity, but also due to the East Coast, West Coast feud that had resulted in the death of rapper Tupac Shakur. While in California, Wallace attended the 1997 Soul Train Music Awards, as well as an after-party hosted by Vibe magazine. Half past midnight on March 9th, the party was shut down by police, and Wallace left with his entourage in two Chevy Suburbans. An unidentified man in a Chevy Impala SS pulled up to Wallace's car at a red light and shot him four times. Wallace died at Cedar Sinai Medical Center. He was only 24 years old. The case remains officially unsolved, though there are countless theories as to who his murderer was. Today, back in the day, in 1847, the first post office west of the Rockies opened in Astoria. Maybe. Pioneer John Shively moved to Astoria in 1844. He was kicked out of the town by the Hudson's Bay Company over a property boundary dispute. He moved to D.C. and was appointed Postmaster of Astoria in 1847 by the U.S. Postmaster General. He oversaw the establishment of the first post office and served as the first postmaster in Astoria for a lengthy two years before running off to California to get in on the gold rush. He lost his gold in a shipwreck and came back to Astoria in 1850, hoping to reclaim his old job. The position had been filled in his absence, but Shively struck gold in southern Oregon and made it out of Astoria relatively wealthy. There are disputes about whether or not the Astoria Post Office is really the first in the West. Some say Oregon City's was the first official post office, opening in March 1847, while others suggest that Salem opened in 1846. The most reliable records, though, say that Astoria's was really the first, and that today would be its 174th anniversary.
1: For today's show, we're going to start with your quick six news headlines. And we have an interview with Portland City Commissioner Carmen Rubio. But first up, X-ray. it's time for today's Quick Six Local Rundown.
0: Governor Kate Brown and other Democrats will allocate $325 million for summer school and child care. On Monday, the governor and other legislators announced they will spend two hundred fifty million in state money and seventy five million in federal money to make up for lost learning. State leaders announced that they will be emphasizing money for schools that serve marginalized communities. The announcement comes alongside Governor Brown's call last Friday for all elementary schools to open by March twenty ninth. She called for six to twelve students to be back in the classroom by April nineteenth the largest spending item is 90 million for summer enrichment programs that includes outdoor activities the arts and robotics it also includes mental health support it also includes line items for high school summer instructions day camps park programs and early childhood programs
1: and now it's time for your daily dose of data the oregon health authority reported 234 new coronavirus cases yesterday There were two new deaths. The state has had a total of 157,515 cases and 2,298 deaths from the virus. Some good news. Oregon is increasing the number of vaccine appointments available for seniors at the convention center. The state has administered over 1 million vaccine doses, But it still has a long way to go. The state administered only 1,950 at the convention center last week for seniors. So this week, the Oregon Health Authority is stepping up that number to a whopping 15,000. The state will continue this trajectory until the end of March. By then, they hope that around 70 to 75 percent of seniors will have gotten at least one dose. The state will continue this trajectory until the end of March. By then, they hope that around 70-75% to 75% of seniors will have gotten at least one dose.
0: Four Oregon hotels were fined for price gouging during last summer's wildfires. The hotels will pay $105,600 to the state, and they will have to reimburse more than 100 families for their hotel costs. Oregon's price gouging law bans increasing prices after the governor declares a market disruption. A disruption like, say, a pandemic or a wildfire. Governor Brown has also declared the pandemic to be a major market disruption. So the Attorney General's office has also been rooting out price gougers who overcharge for things like sanitizer or toilet paper. The office has sent out 36 cease-and-desist letters to price gougers in the past 12 months. It also facilitated financial restitution for victims and donations of essential products like face masks. About hotel gouging, Attorney General Rosenblum said this, Through this settlement, my hope is that we are able to provide at least a little comfort to those families who have already been through so much. We are trying our best to make it clear that Oregon's businesses shouldn't try to take advantage of people during difficult times.
1: There's a new head of Portland's FBI field office. Kiernan Ramsey was named special agent in charge of Portland's FBI field office back in January. On Monday, he pledged a crackdown on Portland's skyrocketing gun violence. Ramsey says he's collaborating with the Portland Police Bureau, the mayor's office, Gresham Police. And the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office to stem shootings. He says the FBI will contribute personnel, funding, and technological resources. Portland Police Bureau has recently formed a new team to reduce gun violence after eliminating a similar team last summer. Special Agent Ramsey has also pledged that any Oregon residents involved in the January 6th Capitol siege will be held accountable. 56 of the 57 FBI fusion centers across America have current investigations into the Capitol siege. The FBI has already made 270 related arrests with more on the way. Previously, Special Agent Ramsey was the director of the FBI hostage recovery fusion cell. He also worked for many years in Seattle working on organized crime, corruption, and the Seattle Joint Terrorism Task Force.
0: Cars were torched and windows smashed at Portland Public School Headquarters. No groups have claimed responsibility for the destruction, although a few major anti-fascist social media pages advertised March 6th as quote, an autonomous day of action. End quote. The Vandals burned a food delivery truck and two maintenance vans. Vandals also smashed windows and sprayed graffiti. No one was hurt in the incident. Portland Police Bureau has said that it is investigating the incident.
1: And some good news. It's day three of the Portland International Film Festival. Online and drive-in screenings will last until March 14th. There are over 75 films from all over the world available to screen at your home. The festival includes high-profile indie titles like Minari and Nomadland, as well as old favorites like the Iron Giant. It also includes local films such as Aquí, which is set on the Oregon dunes, and La Tienda, a film about two Chilean letterpress printers in Oregon. Individual tickets to the festival are $90. Festival passes range from $75 to 350 And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Up next, we'll hear from Portland City Commissioner Carmen Rubio. Commissioner Rubio spoke with Julia Oppenheimer and X-Ray's City Council reporter Sam Smargiazzi about her first few months, her focus on digital equity, and the recent sweeps of city parks. Here are Commissioner Rubio, Julia, and Sam.
2: We are joined now by Carmen Rubio, who is a Portland City Commissioner. She started her term just in January after a long wait. Good morning, Commissioner.
3: Good morning. Thanks for having me
2: here today. Thank you so much for joining us. Also with us today is Sam Smargiasi, who is our city council reporter for X-Ray. Good morning, Sam. Good morning. Good morning. Commissioner, you won your election in May. Did it feel like a very long wait to January?
3: It it really did. In some ways... um it felt like a long wait. But at the same time, it went by really fast, given what's what's been happening, you know, of late, and I was also closing out, um, you know, 10 plus years at an organization that I love. Um, And so um, doing both things, I really had my hands hands full. Yeah,
2: there was no like Netflix and chilling during the pandemic for you no
3: unfortunately not not for me um but i i tried as much as i could to uh maximize that time uh, to you know preparing while also trying to leave the organization in a really good place for uh, my my uh, successor
4: would you have chosen to become a commissioner in the middle of a pandemic had you predicted that timeline
3: you know um a lot of things had shifted um and you know that's a really good question. I haven't really thought about if I had, would have chosen this, but I probably would have I probably I'm uh, you know, looking at the challenges our family or our families were facing. Um, and then the work that I was doing in the nonprofit prior, prior to this role, I was um, seeing firsthand the, the direct impact that the pandemic had on, on children, um, on families that were struggling or were losing uh, their ability to work and provide for their families. So I'm actually um, really grateful that I had that experience because it really formed the lens that I bring into this job in the middle of this pandemic. So I often pull on those those experiences and what I've seen and what I know to be true um, when we're talking about economic recovery and, and uh, sustainable um, um uh, ways that we can make, make sure that we can stabilize our community during this time. And it's been really helpful in guiding me and also, you know, keeping in touch with, uh, those organizations who are on the front lines as well.
4: Okay. Can you be more specific about that? Like how is that materializing on projects you're working on right now?
3: Well, you know, as we're one, one very clear example is, you know, we're talking about priorities that we're setting and that will, you know, and, and big, uh, big issues that are, uh, that are important and cross-cutting for not only our bureaus, but for the whole city. And, um, you know, one of those top issues is, of course, uh, uh, economic recovery from the impacts of COVID and this mm-hmm. pandemic. And so um, I was very much able to draw on my experiences um, around, um, you know, the, the, the challenging uh, financial impact of families, particularly families on the margin, frontline families who are in um, you know, frontline worker positions, uh, families who have lost their job, families who are ineligible for um, unemployment benefits because of their mixed status or legal status or, or particular um, you know, life experience, uh, how they're left out of this um, uh, many recovery uh, packages or um, and how, how do we shore up res- resources for people who need it the most. Digital equity is another huge one that has um, definitely risen to the top for me. Um, it's always been an issue that we have been tracking and have known about in my prior work, but nothing prepared me for how crystallized that need um, and all the deep disparities that we have that we know exist, how they became uh, so, um, you know, they were very much crystallized and lifted up. And we've known they're there. But they're so present in a way that they, that, that they weren't before that you simply cannot ignore them. They have become um, present day challenges for people meeting their very basic needs mm-hmm. at, a, at a minimal level. So I think these are very important things um, that frame the way that I look at policy right now and the way that um, I am going to be um, looking at future opportunities, especially now that we have word that, you know, um, we are going to be receiving uh, financial assistance or to get ready for that, um, how do we how do we bring um, in those experiences and how do we make sure that we efficiently allocate those resources to the places where they need to go uh,
2: most? Do you okay. feel more um, empowered to tackle these issues now that you have this? I mean, you were you were in a, a seat of influence before, um, but now do you feel more empowered as a, as a commissioner?
3: Well, I think I think, uh, I think a, a word I would probably use is I feel the responsibility, mm. you know, of, of doing it. I feel that. Well, I guess I should go back to saying what are the main motivations um, that uh, drove me to run for office. But um, never did I see myself um, it, having this path at all. You know, I was very much um, interested in in the work that I was doing in community and, but it was really like, honestly, you know, the, the terror and the targeting, um, and the, uh, immense like, uh, you know, challenges that, uh, the community I was working with in the community, I belong to experienced on over under the last four years of this, um, administration. And because seeing that it just filled me with just such, Anger and sadness and frustration, then, which translated to local frustration, you know, as well about, you know, we we have all these things that are happening nationally, and and that feeling, which is a mixed feeling of, you know, fighting that feeling of being powerless and using your agency and your privilege, you know, and I and I feel like I, you know, obviously, um, you know, I haven't had um, opportunities. Uh, to lead on behalf of community in ways that um, many don't have that time or ability to advocate. And so I feel this immense responsibility um, to step up and do more. And this felt like something hard and more that I could do, but it was also a way of finally bringing some of um, that accessibility and voice into local policymaking that has... Um, not been there in this way before, and so um, very, um, I'm very excited and motivated to really work with this new council. Um, I so far I feel like we uh, share a lot of uh, the same common values. We might, you know, in the future. I'm not. I'm under no illusion that we, at some point, you know, we have different strategies and ways to get there. But um, the really important things um, are alignment around, um, you know. A, a, um, you know, bringing Portland forward through COVID, uh, the alignment around our housing crisis and addressing the houselessness uh, crisis at root causes and creating that, that true path to housing uh, for our vulnerable community um, and digital equity, you know, climate justice, like all these things. Um, I'm very happy to, to hear shared values from my colleagues as well.
4: I've heard you use that phrase before, um, and I'm sorry if I misquote you. But crystallizing disparities—is that mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. Um, would you think that um, that's maybe one of the benefits of the Trump administration of the pandemic? It kind of created like a list of actionable items. Um, I think hmm, that's a that's
3: a, that's an interesting way of looking at it. I. I I do think on one hand, yes, that um, that it allowed the elevation of things that some of us who work in that work every single day have been, um, you know, basically yelling and crying about for a long time and and advocating. And so there are there are a subset of us and and there's a whole sector and there's, you know, are very good leaders that are all aware of these things and are working towards that. But, you know, unfortunately, sometimes it has to happen on a broader level for people to really understand what that that reality and what that hardship really means. Um, mm-hmm. People sometimes don't care about an issue until it touches your own lives or you can see it directly. And that's that's the world that we live in. And that's that's why advocacy adv- advocacy and advocates um, are so important and so critical because, um they're the ones that are lifting up those experiences and and connecting the dots for, for folks that have had the privilege of not ever having to engage in or or or, or uh, firsthand see or experience any of those challenges that are that are everyday challenges for real people. And and these are the folks that are bearing the brunt and impact. Um, you know of you know, and they're the frontline folks that are feeling the first um, effects of. The economic crisis of uh, anti immigrant sentiment and racial targeting, anti black, you know, these are the folks that are really carrying this weight. Um, and um, we owe it to the community to, to address it at its root cause. And when we're in positions of power or positions of privilege um, or have the, the chance to uh, weigh in on policies, we need to make sure that those policies. Um, and the way that we design things, invite these community in, these communities in, um, a very big value of mine is community self-determination and communities have that right and they should have the ability to self-determine
4: their own lives. And that includes in public policy too. Yeah. Do you think that being civically engaged is a privilege? I believe it's a right. Okay. Do you think that some uh, groups of people uh, are more have more access to that right than other groups of people absolutely
3: yes um yeah
4: i mean you know uh,
3: these systems um are you know are rooted in white supremacy these systems were created by people um that um didn't look like uh my you know don't have the background or don't look like the communities that um, i work with and i come from um don't look like black indigenous um people of color communities, so they were designed not for us, right? And so that recognition that these systems, um, you know, are inherently systems that have direct racial, like create direct racial impacts and disparities, that's a fact. It's not like, it's not, it's not rocket science. It's a, it's a fact. So if we know that, um, it's incumbent upon all of us who are a part of that system and upholding that system to really uh, do what we can to, uh, dismantle and reach and change the system to, uh, rather than designing a system that keeps people out, brings people in. And I know these are big, huge things, and they're not happening overnight. You know, it took centuries to build and uphold these things. Um, but, uh, But slowly, and actually not so slowly, I mean, we are seeing more and more people um, who know what the work needs to be. um, People from BIPOC communities, uh, people who are allies, who are uh, getting into these positions uh, to be able to really affect change um, inside and outside.
2: What are some of the fundamental changes, Commissioner Rubio, that you see for the city following the pandemic?
3: Well, I think that um, one of the big change, well, that's um, it's a good question because on one hand, um, you know, that I'm new to the city. So there are some ways that the city um, probably operated prior to the pandemic that will now change as a result of it. Maybe the, the way we work will change um, the way that we use buildings and come to, come together or don't come together So I'll be curious and, and eager to look at how that, how that reintegration, um, into physical spaces as well, you know, um, changes, um, the use of more digital technology and the work that we do, um, as we interface with the community, you know, um, that is something that we're talking about now. Um, so, uh, I think that's, that's, that's to come, and that's something that I think we'll, we'll see. But um, moving forward, I really think what will absolutely change is the lens at which we look at future budgets for the foreseeable future and the way that we prioritize and, and allocate those budgets. Um, we're not simply um, in, you know, quote unquote, normal times. It, this is really now about stabilizing. What we have, where we have it, and giving lifelines to businesses and families on the front line and and uh, communities um, and particularly those communities who already struggle from lack of access to resources and prioritization um, by by their city. So um, suddenly, you know, uh, we need to prioritize those places because they happen to also be folks and communities and areas that are hardest hit in this pandemic. So it does require. A reprioritization. Um, we don't have um, we don't have the ability to put it on a sequencing timeline and say we'll get to that next. You know, things have become more urgent, and we have to um, face that urgency and and uh, and address it head on and in and in real time. So the lens for for me and for us and the work for us becomes one of how do we stabilize and before we can even begin to talk about recovery um and how do we create those lifelines and um and i, I just see that being um, our our lens and our frame for the time to come
2: we just have a minute or two last left sam do you have any last questions you really want to cover before we wrap sure
4: yeah just one more first of all i just want to say i'm feeling inspired by you I love hearing your passion for the city. Do you want to give us a couple of things that you uh, love about Portland? I love that
3: that that Portlanders feel super committed at, uh, to lifting their voice um, when they feel that something is needed to be said. I love that we have a strong civic ethic um, here in Portland, and I really love that we have such a like such strength. Um, in our community-based organizations and the network of volunteers that exist in Portland. And that is a, that is a strength that is yet to be tapped truly in a meaningful way about um, what a leverage point that could be for governments, what a strong partnership that could be for, for community-based organizations and community volunteers and networks. Um, the wisdom that re- resides in the communities is 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 yet to be tapped um, for uh for the opportunity that it can bring to policymaking. So I'm really excited about integrating those in a way that is meaningful and that it's co-creating policy rather than top-down policy onto the community. So um, so I would stay tuned. I would love to, you know, to come back and tell you if I am making progress or um, or where there are challenges about it. So and I'm super grateful to be invited to be here.
2: Thank you so much. Well thank, thank you. you so much for joining us. It's been really great to talk to you and we look forward to many more conversations with you as you get more comfortable and settled and in your in your position and thanks for being a leader. Thank
3: you. Thank you so much. And have a have a great day and enjoy the sunshine.
0: Thanks to Commissioner Rubio for joining the local. And thank you for listening to the local, your hometown in as close to thirty minutes as is practical. Until next time, take care of your community and be good to yourself.
4: X-Ray.